hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to a hamster with a blunt penknife. Um, Internet's number one Doctor Who commentary podcast. Uh, that was my Welsh accent, which you're going to be hearing a lot more of in this episode. Uh, I'm joined by our host uh, for every evening, Mr. Joe Ford. Hello, Joe. Uh, hello, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, and I'm I'm very pleased to also be uh, had here talking about one of my favourite periods of Doctor Who, uh, series one, and uh, Christopher Eccleston episode, The Unquiet Dead. Yeah. Now, um, cool. Joe, before we start, obviously this is a historical episode. Mm-hmm. You obviously, we both come into this era very differently because obviously you're older than myself, so you've obviously had a lot more experience in the classic series. Yes. When you heard there were going to be bringing Doctor Who back, what were you thinking about there? Were you worried about their attitudes to the historical stories and, and what did you think they were going to look like? I wasn't even sure they were going to do historical stories, if I'm honest with you. And um, to date, my biggest disappointment with the historicals, and I think there have been some sterling like pseudo-historical stories, Rosa, Themes of the Punjab, Fires of Pompeii, this, um, is that they always feel the need to put in a a science fiction element. And some of my favourite Doctor Who stories are those classic William Hartnell, pure historical stories. And I think they absolutely could do it now, but they just... Yeah, I think they could. It's obviously, you know, Series 1 is definitely a... It's a testing ground, I think, mm. for a lot of what's come, what is to come. And obviously, they're never going to do Demons of the Punjab or or Rosa. You know, if, if you remember, obviously, Rosa, they not only have quite an accurate depiction of that time period, to the extent that they use the N-word. You know, you, you're never going to use the N-word in, in 2005. Era Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, let alone, you know, looking at some of the big Finnish pure historicals, you know, you're never going to get the Peterloo Massacre on Saturday night, you know, prime time telling. What a shame, though. That's such a good story, the Peterloo Massacre. It's absolutely yeah. riveting. But I see Definitely. what you're saying. It's a quite adult, isn't it? And I think at this yeah, point, and I- we're going for family audience, which means a monster, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Yeah, and I think um, if you look at the kids, you know, which you obviously want the same that, if you look at, um, if you went into a sort of secondary school history class and asked them what sort of topics they're learning about in history, they might say to you, you know, the Victorian era, World War Two, or the 1980s which are obviously the three historical periods that season one goes into. Yeah. Because they are... Oh, I see. You think they're looking into, like, the Ladybird Book of Historicals? Yeah, and well, you know, Margaret Thatcher and the Blitz and all that. Let's just chuck a bit of that in there, which I think is um, where this comes from. But I think particularly, obviously, this is handed to Mark Gattis. Obviously, you've been on a bit of a with a marathon with the likes of Robot Sherwood and mm-hmm. Victory of the Daleks. And I'm doing Idiot's what, Lantern soon as well. 
Oh, good. So that's another one that's obviously an interesting historical period. And guess what, what else? Your, I, um, guess what else yeah. I recorded the other day? The Lazarus oh, experiment, oh. and that's quite Mark oh, yes, heavy as well. He's in that. He's yeah. in that doing very well. Um, what are your opinions on on Gattis or general oeuvre and his approach to Doctor? Oh, I love that word oeuvre. Um, average if i'm honest i think mm. if you look at the stories he wrote across the new series you've got a couple of above average stories like the unquiet dead the crimson horror you've got a lot of middling stuff like night terrors and cold war and then you've got a couple of stinkers like sleep no more well, it's interesting Sleep No More is probably his least well-recorded one, mm. but it's also the one that's most out of his wheelhouse, I would say. Yeah, and most experimental. The only, yeah, the only two of his that aren't historicals are that and Night Terrors, and obviously they're the two that most people would probably put on the bottom for him. Yeah. Because um, I think quick. I, I sometimes say Mark Hattis is a bit like... Quentin Tarantino of Doctor Who. Go on. In the sense that um, neither of them would probably claim to be the most innovative of, of artists, but they're quite like a bit postmodern in their sensibilities and they wear their influences on their sleeves. So obviously, yeah. the Tarantino yeah. will be, you know, Kung Fu movies and Westerns and all that sort of thing. And for that, yeah. you know. Nigel Neal and uh, Victoriana and stuff like that. And Doctor Who, he loves Doctor Who. And, yeah, Hinchcliffe you know, and Holmes. Obviously. Yeah. And do you know what? I feel like with The Unquiet Dead, he leans into his strengths. This is very sort of... Um, I don't know if you ever saw the League of Gentlemen Christmas special, and it had this mm. sort of atmosphere to it, some spooky, spectral kind of atmosphere to it. And it's, it's what he does best. It's kind of, And that's why I think The Crimson Horrors is up the best, because that's kind of ghoulish... And you know, really, really fun as well. I think I feel like just half the time he's got a good premise, like the Queen's coronation and the wire, or mm. you know, the little boy and the dollhouse, um, and things like that. But it, I don't know what happens. Like for somebody who loves Doctor Who as much as he does, he struggles very often to write memorable Doctor Who. Yeah, I think um, you know he he clearly loves it, and and I think part of the strength of this one is that it's his might be his only go at ever doing it on television because they didn't know whether they were going to get series two or three or anything else. So he's had basically his whole life to come up with a Doctor Who story that you could put on the television screen. Yeah, and um, I would say. You know, the last one we did was The Edge of Destruction, you and I did, which feels a lot like the classic series addressing themes that the new series might pick up. Mm. And this feels like the inverse of that. I think yeah. of all the series one stories, I think it's the one that feels the most like a classic. Oh, that is that's a great observation. God damn it. 
better or worse, it feels the most like a classic. Yeah. Um, well, you could you the thing we talked about in Edge of Destruction, didn't we? That Heart of the Tardis and all of that, and they dealt with that in the new series now, a lot as well. Whereas you're right, yeah. this is this is definitely a pseudo historical. This this could have been in the classic series, couldn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you could put you know Tom and Sarah, or um, I mean, I think McCoy and Ace probably. Adam. Mm, yeah. But, yeah, but uh, so this this series. Is where you stepped into Doctor Who, isn't it? Series one. Yes. So uh, 2005, I was nine years old. So people could do the math on that. Um, <laughs> and so I remember Chris Freckleston did a BBC interview that uh, promoted the show. And he said something along the lines of, you know, this show is being aimed at eight to 12 year olds rather than, you know, your poetry or Baker fans. And obviously being nine, I, my dad had sort of been a poetry and baker fan himself, so obviously I had that knowledge. Um, and, yeah, I, I gravitated towards it. And for those, you know, three months or so in 2005, I latched onto it. And I think um, my reactions to Series 1 was quite different because I think around that age, sort of eight, nine, ten years old, you know, you're going through a lot. And I think one of the biggest things for me was in the summer of 2005, so just after Series 1, we moved house. Mm-hmm. So the house I've lived in all my life, we then left that house. But because of that, that meant the place and the, you know, environment I watched Series 1 in was completely different to the environment I watched The Christmas Invasion onwards. So it's like those initial memories are completely different from my initial memories of every other Doctor Who story. Is there a comfort to watching these then in the house that you you used to live in? Yeah, I can sort of picture myself watching these and like, um, you know, getting off the sofa in the lounge and sort of scooching a little bit closer to the telly to sort of take in what's going on. And you, you... have those memories of, of your first experiences with show that are always going to be different because you're stepping into a new world. Actually, you're spot on with me as well. Like those first couple of VHSs, so my first experience to sort of classic who was those um, edited together VHSs, Terror of the Zygons, Deaths of the Dark, mm-hmm. things like that. And I can actually see myself, I, I would have been about. 12 I think 11 or 12 sitting like at my mum's knee absolutely terrified in the dog like hugging her legs as sister Lamont with her blood running down her arms and terror of the Zygons like, I can see myself in that room watching that and the fear and the excitement of watching this this show for the first time that felt so adult to me yeah you're absolutely right yeah, you know, and so because of that, every single one of these episodes, I have that sort of special memory of. Um, and this one was just one that I gravitated to a bit more because obviously it's historical. Um, so before this, you have obviously Rose and the end of the world. And I think they are a bit more, you know, aliens and uh you know, robots 
boats and spaceships, they all want Doctor Who is being sold on to the kids. Mm. And they're probably not being sold on on this quite as much because they're like, oh, Charles Dickens, you know, olden times, you know, what kids can make of it. Yeah. Um, they never would have started with this, would they? They never would. This never would have been the first Doctor Who story. No. Um, and you look at, um, I think this is a pattern. The first three or four stories, at least, you know, present day, future, past, back to present day, to sort of see the ramifications of Rose's life and how the people in her life have moved on. And you get that. Again, with, you know, Martha, obviously, you get the Lazarus experiment, looking at how her life's moved on, because she's had, you know, with Locke and Shakespeare code, and, and um, I suppose with Donna as well, you know, you get those right the way up to, you know, even series 11, you know, you're getting the reactions I think some of the best parts of Rackman's in the UK are seeing sort of Yaz and, and uh, Ryan and Graham sort of dealing with some of the stuff that they've left behind. Yeah. So I think I mean, this series one is definitely setting the precedent for these things. Can I confess something to you? I have a, a secret love for Arachnids in the UK. I think it's massively underrated. It's camp as hell. It's a proper B-movie, but I just find it so entertaining. I feel as Chibnall was writing more episodes like that, I'd, I'd be in heaven. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it is, again, it's got the mix of the series with obviously the ramifications of Grace not being there anymore and, and obviously having to bring the Doctor into Yazdi's family's household and sort of seeing that interaction with the goofiness of, you know, giant spiders dragging people down into the floor and stuff like that. But this episode, I tell you, it it shows different <laughs> hats to, like, episode one and episode two, doesn't it? Because it is a little more cerebral because there's a kind of moral dilemma in this episode. So I think it's a bit more adult. Um, and it has some nice, hard-hitting dialogue between the Doctor and Rose in those scenes. Um, oh yeah, and it yeah. is scarier as well. This is a you see someone have their yeah. neck snapped in this episode. Yes, uh, multiple times actually. Um, and yeah, you're right. You know, it trusts the viewer a little bit more because obviously it's the first episode. In fact, it's one of the very few new who stories I can think of that neither starts nor ends with the TARDIS team. Mm-hmm. They obviously both start and end in Victorian London. So you don't have that bookend of the Doctor and Rose either way. If you're going to bring um, in Simon Callow, you may as well start and end the episode with him. Exactly. You're going to squeeze as much footage out of him as you can, I suppose. Um, <laughs> oh, that's not a word. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. <laughs> uh, and yeah, you know, it, Rose is the introduction point, it's the pilot, it's the please, you know, trust us, we know what we're doing. The end of the world is getting people used to, right, this is what Doctor Who is, it's not going to be Rose every week, it's going to be something else. And the Unquiet Dead is, here's a bit of history, and, you know, we're, we're getting you in for the ride now. Um, 
yeah, it's that confirmation episode of like, here's the full gamut of what we're going to be doing. Well, shall we <clears throat> step into the snow and face the ghosts? Oh, I, I shall, <coughs> yes. Okie dokie. Well, if you care to count us in. Yes, okay. We shall start in five, four, three, two, one. Go. It's the sneed for shame. <laughs> but yes, a cold open, which I think I was a bit confused by in 2005. I was worried, but I missed something. It's quite nice though because you you get a cliffhanger, don't you? With a cover. Yeah. Do you think this guy looks a bit like David Tennant? He does a little man? bit. He does a little bit. I mean, I I remember watching this and um, thinking, my god, this is a bit strong in this first scene. Yeah, the dead old woman, and you know. I love Mr. Sneed, right? The guy that plays. I've seen him in other things as well, and I think he is Welsh. He is playing like your cod Welshman, though, isn't he? Oh, yeah. She's up on a mountain on her way, isn't she? She's got another dead body. You know, it's very, uh... Yes, I love the blue glow. It's just a very simple effect. Is it our first gaseous life forms in Doctor Who? I mean, at least in the first two episodes, I can't can't say... I guess you've got, like, um... I don't know if they count, but the Varden from the Invasion of Time are a little bit like... Uh, They're more like radio waves, aren't they? Yeah. But I know what you mean. Something coming through the air. Yeah. I um, love that line of, you know, we've got another one. It's just a simple one. This has been going on for a while. Plus, this shot here, right, where it's, it goes past the gaslight and keeps going until we're right down her throat. Where all the yes, I think they, they initially planned on doing that, on having the um, having the vortex go in their mouth, right? ah. which they probably would be able to do now on today's budget. Well, they did, didn't they, in Ascension of the Sidemen? Do you remember they went into the eye? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Do you know, I get, I get um, hints of Shaun of the Dead with that old woman zombie going about killing people, you know, because there's an old woman yeah, in Shaun of the Dead that does and that. And we've got a giant peg turning up, obviously, later in the series as well. This is around the time of Shaun of the Dead, isn't it? Shaun of the Dead 2004. Did you know the party was originally penciled in for? Oh, God, I can't remember. But it's, Rose's it's dad. But, yes, that's right. In yeah. the... Oh, okay, Jack. These scenes, these early scenes, right, in Unquiet Dead and this, of these two round the console, like, where do you want to go? Past or the future? Yeah, I think that the captures the magic of the TARDIS better than practically any other Doctor Who story. Yeah, and that idea of, right, you've done the future, now let's do the past. It's, you know, we're not going to do the same thing every week. But it does as well. It does make the TARDIS feel like um, a bit like a fairground ride, doesn't it? It's like, right, we're, we're going to try this ride and then we're going to try that ride. And it's kind of boiling it down pretty simply, but in a way that a family audience can just get like like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it jerks and jolts a bit like a fairground ride. I mean, we sort of see it like violently shaking. Do you think it's unfair of me to say, because I do think this, that Russell T. Davis, um, 
remembered in i think in pretty much every episode that he put out that doctor who was for a family audience so for adults it needs to be intelligent um it needs to be you know something to get your teeth into maybe a little bit violent and for kids it needs to be funny and colorful and have excitement in it and things like that whereas i feel like moffat and chibnall it pushed away a little bit yeah it got quite adult times um yeah you know you could do both you can mix the art and the entertainment you know um which i think this does i was always so confused by this green glow in the TARDIS. it just looks what do you imagine it is i'm not sure probably some nuclear waste or something Well, there's some. There's a cup of tea that goes down there in a later episode. Do you remember in Christmas Invasion? Yeah. Can I just say, I think Billy Piper looks so beautiful. Oh, she's very particularly in the outfit that they have with him. Obviously, in this episode, obviously yeah. being nine years old at the time, I've quite you know quite like I've been crushing those. Obviously, you know, you're a little boy looking at this sort of thing, um, and I think it's a great audience identification oh that's why Um, this worked though i think that's absolutely why this worked because i think half the audience were not going on for doctor who stories they were going on rose's journey yeah uh these directions that the doctors just given rose about where the costumes are i think someone said that the same directions word for word that capaldi gives bill in thin ice and do you know, do you know the Doctor Who story that's riffing, the classic Doctor Who story that's riffing on? Uh, Sharda. In Sharda, Romana oh, says, Chris Parsons yeah. in the TARDIS and goes, bird left, four right, past the kitchen, da 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 You know, it's very you classic know, Who again. In 2005, only the proper nerds would have known about Sharda because obviously it's not, wasn't as accessible as it is today. You know? Excuse me, I'm wearing my proper nerd um, badge today. Okay. Oh yeah, and Russell P. Davis and Mark Gattis is all right, <laughs> right there as well. You know, they are the most proper nerds you're ever going to meet up here. Honestly, oh definitely. I mean, if you look at series one, you can't get five bigger Doctor Who nerds than Russell P. Davis, Mark Gattis, you know, Stephen Moffat, Rob yeah. Sherman, and Paul, Paul Cornell. Cornell. Yeah, They're probably the five biggest Doctor Who nerds on the whole planet. And, and you know they look the Okay, well, I've got another question for you. Mm. How, where would you rank Christopher Eccleston's Doctor, and what do you think of it? I mean, personally, I have him number one, but I obviously understand that my feelings are so hard to divorce from the fact that it was my first entire run. But I think he's such a great mix of everything that the Doctor should be. You know? A little bit snarky, very smart. And he just, as we see in this episode, he thinks completely differently to the rest of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's got an intensity to him as well that I just think it is like, I can't take my eyes off him. Yeah, I think that's his character actor's sort of background. You know, he's clearly very invested in what this role is and what this show is. And sometimes you need an outsider to do that. I mean, um, if you look at like Star Trek, you've got like Nicholas Meyer, who directed obviously Rafa Khan and Discover Country, wrote uh, the fourth one. 
and they're three of the most highly regarded Star Trek mm. films. And Nicholas Meyer will happily tell you he's not a Star Trek fan. He just sort of objectively looks at how to key into the into the yeah. series, which I think is what Eccleston's doing as well. That's a great parallel, do you know? And I think sometimes when you bring in fresh blood that isn't connected to like Doctor Who fandom, you get terrific mm. results. Because I think you have to be one or the other. I think you either have to be an uber nerd or a complete outsider. Yeah. And having a mix of the two is probably quite good. I think Julie Gardner wasn't a Doctor Who fan, but she fell in love with the show through making it. And Phil Collinson was a massive Doctor Who nerd. And so you had, and those were the two kind of voices, either side of Russell T Davis, you know? This is one of my favourite moments. Um, Rose stands to the doctor, you know, they're about to go outside the TARDIS and she goes, oh, no, you've done this before. This is my moment. And, you know, we're, we're right there with her. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, Doctor Who, you've done this before. I've not had the chance to, you know, go outside and see the past. Um, I think that's a great moment. And I, and I, I would, love the, wouldn't you yeah. step in the snow like that? I would completely step in the snow. Yeah, arm in arm, they're partners, they're, you know, great friends, uh, and obviously maybe more later on. But, uh, Do you know, I didn't spot the old woman in the audience to start off with. I, I did. I, it's a great question, then. And again, like you said about getting the kids involved, yeah. it's like a where's worry sort of quality to it, which... Um, they do a similar thing in Rose, the episode Rose, where the doctor's doing his terming of the earth speech. Mm-hmm. And whilst he's doing that speech, you can see the TARDIS in the background and they don't highlight it. It's just in the background. And I, I love that moment as a kid where I'm sitting there and I'm going, that's the TARDIS, it's in the background. Like, I've spotted it. It's made me feel smarter because I'm, I'm working with what they want me to work with. That's coming from Keith Bowick as well, who people really don't rate his direction. And I think there are moments where he's sloppy, but actually there are moments where he's very strong as well. So it's less um, where's Wally, more where's zombie granny. Yes. (laughs) Okay. There's a whole book, you know, to be made out of that. Yeah. They make it a little bit obvious when she starts blowing blue, but... uh... (laughs) Do you know what? I know some fabulously creative people, you know, on Twitter that do drawings, I might ask them to make a wear zombie granny picture. I think, um, I think, I know I have gone on record as saying that I think, um, not always, but often, um, Stephen Moffat wasted incredible, like celebrity guest actors people like Arabella mm. Weir, Bill Bailey, people like that. Um, even people like Richard E. Grant. I don't think he got anything spectacular to do. This era, this these four seasons, they knew how to deliver great parts to fantastic actors. And what Simon Callow does with Dickens here is oh, extraordinary. Yeah. I think he's the gateway because he's like an actor who a lot of other actors would respect. Mm. And so if they here. Because they're all actors talk to each other. And if they hear, oh, my God, you know, um, Christopher Eccleston and Simon Callow and Annette Adland and all these kinds of people doing Doctor Who. Richard Wilson. 
Yeah, but obviously different celebrities have different like star names for various age audiences. Mm. So they've got celebrities for people of all ages. So that when I was watching Doctor in this period, my celebrities weren't, you know, Simon Callow and Annette Badland. Like I was I was hyped with, you know, Reggie Yates playing Martha's brother. Oh, like that was my idea of a celebrity. Do you know what I was? It's Reggie from, you know, CBBC. I, uh, mine was Catherine Tate because I freaking love the Catherine Tate show. So when I saw her in the TARDIS, I was absolutely in my element. Yeah, but, you know, I think without Simon Callum, I don't know if you get a Catherine Tate, you know, agreeing to sort of come in for a bit. Yeah, or a Kylie Minogue. Yes, definitely. Um, Rose getting chloroformed here. Do you think Kylie Minogue's the most like prestige guest that they've had? Well, um, I mean, you've got Michael Gambon was pretty big. Oh, he was big. Oh, Derek Jacoby? Derek Jacoby, yeah. Again, who's probably, you know, taught for Simon Callow. I mean, Ian McKellen is the sort of voice thing. He's mm. so big, they can't even get him on set. They have to get him in a recording booth. That's how big he is. You know? I mean, actually, interestingly now, probably the biggest name in Doctor Who... Is Karen Gillan, given the movie she's yeah, going to do. Yeah. Um, or David Tennant, you know. I'm okay. sure when they get him back for the ship stuff, that'll be a pretty big one. Do you know, there was a bit a moment ago where um, they heard everyone screaming in the theatre and mm. Eccleston goes, oh, fantastic. And no, that's it goes yeah, that's more likely, I think he says, yeah, which is the spirit of the doctor. Yeah. You know, hearing screams of terror and going, that's more likely. Oh, don't you love it? He's a massive Dickens fanboy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting because um, we did the Edge of Destruction last time. And one of the things which links this to the Edge of Destruction is that they make a Charles Dickens reference in the Target novelization. Because mm. Barbara goes, oh, it's really weird. You know, they haven't even got any Charles Dickens books in the Target. And Susan's never even heard of Charles Dickens. <laughs> which is like, Quite an amusing thing to think, well, the first Doctor doesn't like Charles Dickens and the ninth Doctor does. So you kind of wonder which one of them picked up the Charles Dickens. I remember there was a fabulous um, Paul Miles book called Mad Dogs and Englishmen in the Eighth Doctor range where (laughs) we visit the TARDIS library and there's a book uh, that the Doctor's gone into and it's all like... um, I think it's like a guy to the universe or something like that. And he's literally written in the margins in different incarnations, arguing with himself and disagreeing yeah. with himself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nobody calls me Charlie. I hear the ladies do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's Russell being, I think that's a Russell line. I don't know about the more episode. You know, the char- the chemistry between Eccleston and um, Callow wasn't guaranteed, but it is terrific. Oh, no, I think Eccleston's stepping up his game because he knows, like, oh, you're yeah. not someone who's going to stand in an alien costume. You know, you're a proper actor. You know, I genuinely um, think, Jack, in the second half of Series 1, Eccleston's performances are some of the best performances we ever saw as the Doctor. Because I think the material gets darker. Yeah. Here, even in this, there's a bit of a lighter tone. 
And because obviously, I'm sure because the big issues that he was going through probably impacted his performances as well. Which he's been quite public about now, hasn't he? That there was mm. a lot going on and that he was having creative differences behind the scenes and things like this, you know. it's Yeah, but I think a lot of a lot of his favourite stories, I think, are in the second half. Like he's spoken quite positively about the empty child and Dalek and Father's Day. Like they're probably some of his favourites ones he's spoken about quite a bit. I tell you what I think is massively, massively underrated is Boomtown. Yes, I mean that's you know, and that was written on the fly. You know, that was written, you know, Russell T. Davis wrote that, you know, on the back of a napkin or whatever in a week. And you know Did you know what, Jack? The excess poison, no, what is it? The excess gas can be exhaled through the lungs. Um, yeah, I love this. Zombies. Yes, multiple at the same time. Um, we hadn't had the Unquiet Dead at this point, had we? This is the Unquiet Dead. Oh, th- what am I talking oh. about? The Walking Dead. We're having the Unquiet Dead by now. <laughs> you know our men, <laughs> the Walking Dead. Yeah, no, um, no, uh, I don't know if the comic was out, but obviously the show's not out for quite a few years after that. Um, you, you deadpan me beautifully then, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, the one cast member we've not talked about yet, uh, Eve Miles, obviously a yeah. from the uh, I think she's the MVP of this episode. I, I I think she's giving a really delicate, very nuanced performance in this. Yeah, I think she might be better in this than she is in Torchwood. There's no... But I'm not a bigger fan of Torchwood, but... I don't mind it. And I think the best of Torchwood is really, really good. Children of Earth, I think, is fantastic. And some of yeah. the too. But... I think she's often written to extremes and she's shouting a lot. And you know what I mean? There's no subtlety in her characterization in Torchwood, except for mm. a few episodes. Whereas this just shows what she can do with a really sort of delicate part. Yeah, and bear in mind, you know, there's only really five main actors and two of them are the regulars and one of them is Simon Carroll. And, mm. you know, you're sort of holding your own amongst that. What I love in uh, a minute is... Oh, sorry, go on. They reference the... Uh, Mr. Sneed apparently groped uh, uh, Rose in the back of the taxi. It's a dirty old pervert, that's why. Oh, you're wondering hands you dirty pervert. Yeah. But there's a few adult reference. Like, I think um, Cassandra calls her a prostitute in the end of the world or, yeah. or something like that. There's a few adult references. Well, and I think they were kind of testing the water in series one as well. And 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 I think as they got more confident as it went along, they brought in Jack, who was bisexual, and they had the kiss, the the dual kisses, man, 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 woman at the end of the season, and things like that. And obviously, yeah. (laughs) But what I really love in a minute is there's a sequence between Rose and. Gwyneth that goes on for a good couple of minutes it's an extended dialogue sequence and it's all character it's all about her and her gift and there's a chilling moment where she looks into Rose's mind and sees the future and then says about the big bad wolf yeah and I think that seems the whole of the episode really um and this one as well I suppose but it's it, I I like this because there is a lot of talk in this, and it's smart talk as well. They're talking about a race 
that is going to inhabit the cadavers um, of human beings um, to survive. Different morality, mm. you know. That's what Doctor Who should triumph do. It should triumph or put a morality tale amongst the adventure and make you think about, oh, what would I do if I was the Doctor or if I was Rose? Um, and you, but you understand both points of view, like yeah. Um, Rose is obviously so different. She's obviously a human, and even for a human, she's quite a young one. Yeah. So obviously, her perspective is going to be so different from you know. Like I really, really like like the work of Malcolm Hulk in the John Pertwee era, but <clears throat> he's absolutely making a point when he's writing a script. Oh yeah. And you know where his leanings are. Whereas what's nice here is you get the Doctor's point of view, you get Rose's point of view, and I don't think the episode falls down on either side. It says you decide. Yeah, I mean, luckily it doesn't matter which one that's right because obviously they didn't need to inhabit the bodies in the day or they don't get to. Um, and this is another pretty important scene as well because it's about Charles's sort of crisis of faith and a big theme of the Russell T. Davis era is people having crisis of faith yeah. and wondering what is the point in their life now that they've experienced what the doctor experiences every day. You know, they've had that glimpse and they don't know whether they like it or not. And it, it shapes them up, which is obviously a recurring theme throughout his era. Obviously, you know, Jackie Tyler is, you know, the personification of that, that theme. Um, but we're getting it here. There's another, <clears throat> there's a, there's certainly a theme in series one, which I remember was criticised as the season was going along, that Christopher Eccleston's Doctor wasn't directly responsible for the conclusion of the story as the Doctor, he wasn't being proactive. Instead, he would encourage other people to yeah. take an act. And what people didn't realize is it's all part of this thing <clears throat> that rusty davis does which is a long game is it's leading up to that moment in um part of the ways where he's got his hands on the thing and he's got to make the choice whether to directly like murder everybody and he does what he's done all season he says no i'm not gonna do it, no, I'm not gonna do it. yeah and it's funny you say about that choice i think one of the most important things that doctor who historicals do is the historical characters look at the companions like the companions look at the Doctor. They're this unusual, godlike being from another time who knows more than they should, who says more than they should, particularly in this scene, obviously Grimmett is scandaled by what you know Rose is talking about, just as Rose is, is scandaled by what the Doctor is talking about. And I think this shows Rose's journey in becoming more like the Doctor, which happens throughout all three historicals. In um, you've obviously got this one. Uh, in Father's Day, she becomes more specifically like the Ninth Doctor because she persuades her dad to save the day rather than her saving the day herself. Because the Doctor's not there, she has to sort of cosplay as the Doctor. Mm -hmm. And in the Empty Child she becomes even more like the Doctor because she gets her own companion, Captain Jack, and she invites her new companion. The Doctor doesn't invite Jack on the TARDIS. Rose invites her new companion onto the TARDIS. 
And by the time we get to 2004, the doctor and those uh, almost equals in that. They are on par. Well, well, she's down, isn't she? She's down in the cellar saying, come on, my lady, we're going to get out of here. Paul, you know, and she's being the doctor. Yeah. And that's what the historicals can do is show him that actually we might think the doctor is different, but we're closer to the doctor than these historical characters are. That's another, but you should have a podcast. You know what? Honestly, well, I, I feel like I should go on one every now and then. I feel like your so, thoughts have been marinated for a long time, you know. These oh, I've been watching this episode for you know, 17 years. <laughs> this uh, is, I'll tell you what, this is a very bingeable season, isn't it? And I never come away from this season unsatisfied. Yeah. Again, it's that theme and characterization sort of going throughout the whole thing. Um, we've talked over most of this conversation, which is a shame because it's one of the best scenes in the story. Mm. Um, and it's funny, obviously, putting Eve Miles and Billy Piper next to each other because they obviously cast her as Gwyneth. And Gwyneth, Gwyneth's arc in the first episode of Torchwood, she's basically playing the role of Rose in Rose. I think those two episodes are very similar in the sense yeah. of like Gwyneth being an ordinary person <clears throat> who sees this mysterious figure, Jack, and, you know, the Doctor, and it's sort of assimilated into their, their world. So it's interesting that they sort of looked at these two and, and put them in both very similar roles. The second episode of Torchwood is called Day One, and like hmm. Rose going on her first sort of step out into space, uh, Gwen is exposed to well I mean it's a mad sex gas alien you know but, but do you know what I mean she's exposed to all the madness of of what tortures is, is going to bring into her life yeah um yeah and uh, obviously this is him sort of persuading Gwyneth to sort of do what she needs to do uh, but do, do you know what as well this is definitely slower this episode than what comes later, even in later Rusty Davis seasons, but certainly anything from Moffat's time onwards. This is slower paced, I think. And well, yeah, it's uh, to its strength, yeah. it's to its merit, I think. Yeah, it limits the characters, limits the settings, and just says we're going to let these personalities go off at each other. This is the sort of cheap mummery I attempt to unmask. <laughs> um, it's interesting, um, obviously earlier... Charles Dickens obviously referenced Phantasmagoria, which is obviously a Mark Gattis big finish, and that also had a chance. It, it did, and there are there are a lot of strong parallels to Phantasmagoria in this. Um, I've yeah. recently reviewed it for my my new big finish um, YouTube channel, um, and I felt very strong, unquiet dead vibes when I was. Although obviously that came first. But again, that was his big first big finish wasn't it mm -hmm. so it's like yeah. you know you've got one chance go and he sort of come up with quite similar things and he conquered the books as well he's done it all Mark exactly you know he, if i was showrunner of doctor who mark gattis would always be someone who i'd ring up to try and do an episode per series have i missed of uh mm -hmm. charles dickens that amazing line he has about um what is it about the dead inhabiting cadavers? I don't know, I can't remember the full yeah. line, but it's, it's just 
Sums up William Matt, who sort of to it. Yeah, it's a very sort of uh, Christopher Benjamin, Henry Jago style performance, isn't it? Mm. And this is an amazing shot of um, Gwyneth with the uh, girls coming in over her. Uh, Pity what, me, Jack. What, um, Pity the girls. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just doing impressions of the girls. Oh, Pity the girls. <laughs> and I love how when they turn out to be evil, their voices are a lot more sort of growly and demonic. Um, what are your opinions on the girls? Because obviously I know they get a lot of controversy. I think, um, who was it who did that? Was it Lawrence Miles who, who sort of condemned this story for them being quite um, a sign of like vitriol towards refugees? Oh, I mean, yes, you absolutely, you could put that reading into it if you wanted to. But you know what? Yeah. You look at a lot of Doctor Who and you can put political and troubling readings into a lot of it. And you know what? That's no fun. Lawrence Miles hated the new series, didn't he? he? He loathed it. There was like one episode that he said was any good. And that was like gridlock. And all the rest oh, of yeah, it yeah. Was, was, you know rubbish and i you know and i think that's because he wasn't invited to come onto the series and he spent yeah. a lot of time on his website writing a lot of clever words about how shit all of this is well guess what it still provided a lot of people a lot of enjoyment lawrence so oh yeah um, i mean I, you know it's not necessarily a belief i subscribed to. i just thought at the time i didn't it never even occurred to me i just thought oh well they're racial aliens and they're just trying to you know conquer the world that's all never even in the same breath, it's like the same, like the, the you know people that say about um, the Tecteun plot with the third Doctor mm. is you know it's got like abortion parallels and the dangers of, of uh, oh like, yes not, room, yeah. not abortion what am I talking about um adoption. Sure. Oh right, no, so I thought you meant kill the moon. Kill the moon yeah. was the one, yeah, sorry, which is about. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's and that's the parallels that they've been made. And do you know what? It is interesting to give those readings. Um, I think the girls are pretty effective, you know. Yeah, I, I, I like the sort of it's quite simple, isn't it? Blue means good, red means you know bad. It's very it's very angels and demons, sort of like that that kind of imagery. But they're sort of like um, a bit nebulous, aren't they? And a bit unknowable and very subtly tied into the Time War arc as well, that they are... Yes, it is from the, the Time War. war. I and mean, you obviously have that shot of Eccleston looking a bit like, oh, you know. Um, this is obviously the big, some of the big moral stuff. Uh, it's, it's like recycling. Yeah. That's a strong line, that, isn't it? It's like recycling. And in a way, that's just as dark as um, Dark Water and Don't Cremate mm. Me, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit... I don't know if Doctor Who should necessarily start being the afterlife because obviously that's such a, a wide-ranging concept that, you know, mm. Doctor Who could do a whole box set with different versions of the afterlife in it and, and not need to stick to one, you know. That would be quite a responsible take on it, wouldn't it? To give it lots yeah. of different readings and then say, but there's also millions more, you know. Yeah, it's a bit like they keep coming up with different 
uh, origin stories for Atlantis, you know. It's, yeah. <laughs> we haven't done that in the Atlantis YouTube yet. I uh... could do that with a proper budget now as well. That would be amazing. Yes. Imagine the underwater menace with like the budget for that legend of the sea bubbles. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, Tide Monster, when we saw the destruction of Atlantis with just like one jabber like pillar falling over. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, the moor is so, such a creepy setting. It's a very strange. Yeah. I love the guy's moldy feet. Stick him out underneath the. Uh... That's very League of Gentlemen, that isn't it? And Crimson Horror. Yeah. As well. I, I like to imagine that's Mark Gaffis as well. I think the bit that really shocked me in this was when Sneed had his neck snapped because he's been the comedy character until this point. And I was like, wow, that's dark. They've taken who's essentially the comic relief in this episode, murdered him, and then possessed him. Yeah, and he's given quite a threatening performance, I think, when he gets. Oh, Jack, and you get that lovely, beautiful moment where they hold hands, don't they, and say, right, we're going to face this together. Yes, when we get to it, it's a really striking visual when it, when it comes up. Um, oh, Gwyneth's about to make her sacrifice. Um, but I think, you know, one of the reasons I like Rose so much is because of her compassion... And her, you know, always trying to make sure that people are sort of respected. Obviously, in the end of the world, we had that with the um, the, the janitor character. She has obviously that that conversation. Oh, Raffalo, yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, we've had that with Gwyneth. Um, she sort of pals up with no, Harriet Jones, doesn't she, in Aliens of London? Yeah, um, and obviously, with, I suppose it, it gets unstuck a little bit with the Dalek in Dalek, who obviously takes advantage of, of her doing that. Um, well, it's Bruno yeah. Langley in that one, isn't it? What's his name? Adam. Yeah, so shouldn't have let him, uh, shouldn't have let him on there. <laughs> one of the advantages of watching this episode is uh, the end of the world. This episode and Father's Day are obviously the only three without Bruno Langley or uh, Noel Clark or John Barnum. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, um, I, I am thankful that we, yeah. haven't, we haven't had to go there. Yeah. No. Um, yes, yeah, so, uh, so Sneed's just been killed. And I think he's quite, gives quite an effectively chilling performance because, you know, if a comedy character, suddenly has to turn into a zombie. There's yeah. no guarantee that the, the actor is going to handle that tone switch well. But I think this actor definitely... Um, well, the makeup is quite subtle as well, isn't it? I think the makeup is really good. The 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 contact lenses yeah. are great. And then it's just like um, subtle sort of under the eye, isn't it? Yeah, a bit baggier. Um, I'm not sure why the ghosts aren't going after Charles Dickens at this point. It's sort no, of they're just, just sort of swirling it, about, know? looking fabulous, aren't they? Yeah, and giving Charles enough time to run out of that door. Oh, did you see that young girl? She looked really ghoulish. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's, you know, elderly people and children are probably the, the most effective ones. I think no, those zombies, those zombies leaning up against those bars like that, that's quite strong for young children. 
yeah, and it's very claustrophobic. They're like trapped in quite a small space. Uh, the ghost comes out the door knocker a bit like in uh, Christmas Carol when Molly yeah. Not a knocker, Jack, but Marley's ghost. Marley's ghost. <laughs> uh, I, I, Simon Carroll, obviously we haven't mentioned, is quite the expert on Charles Dickens, which is mm. probably why they've uh, picked him, but adds a bit more authenticity to it. Um, he does a great reading of a Christmas Carol. Um, oh, he really does. He's clearly loving doing this. Well, he loved it enough to come back for that little cameo in... Um, yes, the Living with the Song, yeah. which also co-stars uh, Mark Gattis. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, and, of course, didn't he play Slavine, Simon Callow? Did he do it in the series? Oh, yeah. in The Gift, yeah, the end of what? season three. Yeah, him and yeah. The, the person I'm always, trying to cast. I'm always trying to yes. cast her in everything, Miriam Markley. I'm, I'm sure. He's not been in Doctor Who yet, oh, in the main show. She'd be such a good villain, Jack. I say, but honest to God, she began on about her vagina all the time because that's all she ever talks about, I'm telling you. Well, that's all right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, uh, I mean, in a few decades' time, she'll be the unquiet. I'm surprised she hasn't been the Doctor. She's a mad, bloody eccentric. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, there's a great close-up of the two of them holding hands. Mm. And, you know, people say this romance only really started with the tenth Doctor and Rose. Not I think in, in the three episodes up to this point, Rose Young quite the end of the world. In all three of them, I think we've had close-up shots of the Doctor and Rose holding hands which is like quite a suggestive like gesture. In Father's Day, when they have the argument in the flat, that plays out like a breakup scene between two lovers in a soap. It it really does. It's written and played that way. And particularly, you know, when you're a kid, like the idea of holding hands is like very racy. Yeah, <laughs> particularly if it's in a close-up shot, he'll be giving her his pin next, won't Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I probably sat there feeling quite uncomfortable when I watched that the first time. Jesus, what did you feel like when they were snogging? Come the end of the season, I think I, I just, you know, I fainted probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what did you think there when Amy Pond tried to get into bed with the eleventh Doctor? Oh, I think that's a bit much. I think I'd sort of. I think I was reviled by that. Point. Oh, well, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> you know that don't, don't you think? I think because it's like a gas creature and so it's nothing too yeah. sophisticated, actually, the CGI holds up quite well. Yeah, it does. Um, this, um, there's a CGI effect in a couple of minutes which is, does not hold up quite as well. You mean the explosion? But, uh, the explosion, the, the, yeah. the really fake fire that looks like a. Uh, Microsoft Windows. Uh, <laughs> I think they use the same one, you know, where Martha's flat goes up in the sound of drums. Yeah, well, at least that's got a little more, you know, bombast to it. <laughs> and that's, you know, you've at least got episodes in that series, like, you know, 42 and stuff, and gridlock. You know, the better. blue ghost going around, there's, it's something, there's something like fluidic about it, isn't it? It looks like water running around. It's, it's really nice. Yeah, it's very elemental. 
Um, yes, there's that that fiery <laughs> building straight out of them. Do you know what it is? The, the, there's no depth to it, is it? It's just not. It's just. No, like it's <laughs> Bless. Mind you, what did you think of that explosion on top of Heinrichs in Rose? Uh, that looked better, I thought. Um, obviously, you know, you've got Jackie and all that reacting to it. Um, but I think Rose is such a different pace to this episode. So it sort of carries you along and then you're swept up in it. Yeah. And you know what? Because we had that scene where Rose and Gwyneth got really kind of close to each other. This ending really impacts. It's not just somebody sacrificing their life. It's someone we really care about, you know, going oh, yeah, out yeah, in a shocking way. Yeah, and, and it obviously gives you quite a lot of visual information. So it gives you her, you know, lighting the match and stuff like that, which you put the pieces together and you go, that's quite a dramatic way to, to die. You know? That there is a bit stagey. That long pan upwards on them, all looking very thoughtfully. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Air. This is the shot that's going into the next time trailer. You know, yeah. Oh, the ending's fab as well when he goes off laughing his head off. Yeah, a bit like Scrooge, obviously, at the end of. Uh, yes. You've read a bit of Dickens, uh, haven't you? Yes, right away. I love, um, again, you know, we've got obviously Charles confronting the Doctor earlier about, you know, the way his life has changed. And now he's quite happy with it because he's been, like all artists, like I'm sure the likes of Russell T. Davis and Mark Gattis have felt, you feel that new spark of life that makes you want to create, which, of course, you know, having Russell T. Davis come back now to Doctor Who, he's probably felt that that spark again, and, and yeah. you know I've had my world changed, uh, which is pretty big. Oh, and of course, those kisses uh, Charles Dickens, which again was, I think my reaction was quite similar to Charles's. What? How modern? <laughs> oh, this Doctor Who is very modern. Yeah, very modern. You know. And do you know what as well? I, I, I meant to mention earlier, and that is uh, that thing that becomes a cliche in, uh, it's in the Shakespeare Code and it's in the Agatha Christie episode as well, where you're dropping references to their works throughout. So yeah, it's, it's at one point... Oh, Charles Dickens, famous author. Talk about a bleak house, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so, American bit in Martin Chuzzlewit. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, what was that bit about? That was rubbish, that bit. <laughs> But you, I, I suppose actors, you know, it's an actor's job to sell something like that. And, you know, Eccleston sort of roils through it very quickly. Mm. And I notice, I think there's a trend with Eccleston. If he's got dialogue, he's not quite sure what to do with it. He sort of rattles through it like, really, really quickly. Oh, I think he handles the humour way better than other people say he does. I think he's very funny. Yeah. I think maybe in Rose maybe takes them a bit, and I think that might leave an impression on people. But I think people want to think of him as, you know, the dark war veteran, which, you know, yeah, that is there, but that is way more multifaceted than that. 
One of my favourite sequences in the whole of uh, series one, you know, is in Boomtown where Margaret Slavine's climbing out the window and he does that little eyebrow raise and then he's yeah. there with the screwdriver, like keep bringing yeah. it back. Yeah. I'm back, you know. It's so funny. He's so good. Uh, so Charles has been left delirious. Uh, we've found out he's about to die in a year. I mean, look at this. Uh, this is kind of like Hollywood scale. They've done a yeah, whole it's a, I don't stream. Know that. I, don't know. I mean, it looks like a set. That's really impressive. Um, oh, now we've gone from one end to the other. We've gone from a you know small character piece to the big you know big Ben exploding and uh, planes crashing in and unit and all of this sort of thing. Do you know what? I'm going to say something now that's quite controversial. Mm. I adore Aliens of London and World War Three. I think it is think, you know, brilliant. It's a very fun one. And again, it's very different in tone and scope to the Unquiet Dead, which is what you want Doctor Who to be. And there's another cast member from Torchwood. Well, no, so they retcon that, don't they? They retcon that. Yes, and say they that, say that it actually is her. It was supposed to be said? Owen, I think, and that Tosh, Tosh covered for him. Yeah. Which is like um, bizarre. But, well, um, oh, it's, I think it's quirky, but all it's right. Quirky okay. So that it's, was uh, completely delightful, I think. Yeah, but it rushed past. Um, I'm going to ask you to do the impossible now. And you and I are going to back back and forth one at a time. Three reasons right. why somebody should go and watch The Unquiet Dead right now. And you're going to go first. Um, oh gosh, I mean, um, well, I'd, I'd probably start. I mean, we're doing three each. Do you want me to talk about both of the TARDIS team or we're going to split them up one yeah. each? Uh, well, I'll start with Billy Piper because I think Rose is such a great companion, she's a sort of doorway into the series, and this is one of my favorite Rose stories. Um, I think she looks beautiful and she's got that compassion and that warmth towards people she doesn't know, which I think is the ethos of, of what Doctor Who should be, ideally, uh, what it should teach. And, uh, yeah, I think she succeeds in, in an environment which, you know, she, she has to carry along younger fans into a historical more than you have to carry them into... A, a future story. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm going to tip the wink to someone we haven't mentioned at all, and oh. it's very remiss of us, and that is the director, Euros Lin. Yes, of course. Yeah. Who puts to get, a bit, like, this is technically like our first Christmas special, and yeah. I think it has more visual flair than some of our Christmas specials. <laughs> um, it, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to look at. Um, it's well-paced. He drives terrific performances out of all the actors. I think it's a very accomplished, very polished piece of work. Yeah, um, I'll go, gosh. I mean, I'll go, I'll go, I mean, I've, I've split the TARDIS team up now, so I might as well go for the Doctor. Um, Eccleston, you know, my first Doctor that I watched the whole way through, and probably still to this day my favourite, just because of those endearing memories. Um, I think he gets a lot more layers to his performance in this story. You've got the humour, 
Uh, both, you know, the sort of dramatic irony that comes with meeting a historical celebrity, you know, you could make, have fun with the uh, Dickens references, um, but also he shows the gravity of the situation, which is, you know, he's met the, the Messian consciousness and now he's met the Gelf. We're piling on, you know, victims of the time war, and, you know, despite the, the girls' sort of villainous intentions, they are still victims of the time war, you know, just as much as the Dalek from Dalek is, you know. And um, we're seeing all that pressure and that responsibility pile on his shoulders. Um, and, and we see that, you know, sometimes he can't, he, he, he thinks on a different plane to the rest of us. And I think he sells that quite well in the sense that, you know, he says something like, oh, they could diffuse people's corpses and just recycle them. And he sells it. And you sort of buy that idea to the point where you're sat there going, oh, yeah, they could, you know, recycle the human bodies. Which, if you think about it, that's quite a crazy idea. You know, that's that's like what the Cybermen do, yeah. you know. And the doctor's just sort of suggesting, oh, yeah, let's do what the Cybermen do. And you, you sort of buy that because of Eccleston's performance. And it doesn't seem as kind of grisly, does it? it actually, he almost yeah. makes it sound like a plausible idea. Yeah, I mean, and that performance sells it because, you know, a lesser actor might not have been able to get that, get that idea across, which is what this episode is trying to do, but these are the sort of conversations that will be had when you travel through time and space. Um, and you need that character actor to do it. You sum that up beautifully. Um, I'm going to say for my second one, I think the slightly more adult content in this is handled very well because it is, I think it's kind of just on the edge of what's acceptable, but it stays within, you know? And so it's a point where I'm going to go, oh, that's that's strong. Actually, no, I think a kid could watch that and they'd be OK. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, I mean, it's a typical Mark Gattis in the sense that it's sort of pushing the limits and seeing what you can get away with, which is what he's been doing his whole career and what he'll continue to do, I'm sure, no doubt. Um my third one, then, is a little bit more general and a little bit more rounded. I'm going to go for the, the impact of historical stories in Doctor Who. You know, <laughs> historical stories are the best way of seeing different viewpoints throughout human history and for getting increased representation. You know, obviously not quite as much in this episode, I suppose. But um, although there are obviously a lot of um, key uh, gay creatives, obviously, in this episode, you've got, you know, Russell T. Davis, Mark Gattis, Simon Callow, uh, I believe you are slim as well, I think. Um, but yeah, you know, you get things like Rosa and Demons of the Punjab, and a lot of the actors in those stories might not be in an average Doctor Who story, but oh, because it's, you know, an episode set in that era, let's get some of some of these sorts of people in. Which um I think it, it the Unquiet Dead 
has to sort of register the kids that right it is it's not going to be boring and it's not going to be just a history lesson to go back in time um and like i said earlier you know we see the companions sorry we see the doctor how historical characters see the companions and that is really well demonstrated in this episode because it, it gives you a different perspective on their adventures. You know, they're not just, uh, we're not just having fun with them. They're making incredibly important decisions for a bunch of people whose, whose lives have already been determined. Um, you know, Charles Dickens's lifespan was already a matter of historical fact before the Doctor and Rose turned up. Whereas if you look at like the events of 2005, they're obviously still a bit in flux, as we see with obviously like Harriet Jones. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so yeah, it, it, long, long story short, it um, sort of uses the historicals to push the boundaries of storytelling and the, the level of consequences that the TARDIS team can have in the world. Sets so a standard, doesn't it, as well, for the historicals going yeah. forward? Definitely, yeah. Um, my third one then is going to be because I think if I was talking about her in Torchwood or in Broadchurch or even in the Stolen Earth, um, I would be less kind because um, I think Eve Miles can overstate her performance. Um, <laughs> it's a real um, example of less is more. And she's giving just a very, very subtle performance in this. And I think it's really beautiful. And I think it's a character that we fall in love with very quickly. And if it isn't for the hard work she's doing, the ending wouldn't have the impact that it does. Yeah, if it had been a lesser performance, then you wouldn't, you're right, you wouldn't have that sympathy for Gwyneth. Um, And yeah, you know, I mean, you know, Maybe she was uh, better off as as Gwyneth than obviously she was as as Gwen. Also, I think start, there's such an afterthought in Stolen Earth, but like you yeah. know, of all the subplots in that episode, the Torchwood subplot is probably the least. Like you guys get that or relevant, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, they make reference to this uh, story. Obviously, mm. in that they make they make that connection. Um, but yeah, you kind of forget that she looks, I mean, Billy Piper kind of looks like the right age. Gwyneth doesn't, you know, Eve Miles, obviously not that Eve Miles isn't a good looking woman, but she doesn't look 18 or whatever they say Gwyneth, Gwyneth is. Mm-hmm. But that performance, I think, sells it. Yeah. Um. Well, that was a complete delight to talk to. Jack, yeah. you're very, very good at this. Um, oh, um, gosh, no. I'm, no, no. I'm sorry. No, I will not have humbleness. <laughs> I've reserved that for myself. Um, what I'd like to do, though, is to is for us to tackle a longer classic yes, story, definitely. if you're willing. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, what... It, is there a particular era that you would like to talk about? 
Well, is there a particular story you'd like to talk about? I mean, obviously, I've done well, quite a few, but there's a few I haven't done still. Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, hmm, there's quite a lot, isn't there? It's a tricky one. It is a tricky one. Well, I'll tell you what, should we determine that <clears throat> off camera? Yes, to, to spare the audience. <laughs> but just to say once again, what a delight it is to talk to you. And I can't yes. wait to do it again. Oh, thank you. Joe, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> <laughs>